0: I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better.
1: I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make
2: the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of
3: love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting.
4: For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands
5: more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
3: And welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you live from Pitchfork Music Festival, uh, speaking with Connie's Pizza. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank Would you, you. like to introduce yourself?
4: My name is uh, Michael Stolfi, and I'm the president of Connie's. Uh, so your dad started this back in the 60s, right? That's right. So my dad started it in 1963. He just got married. He was working uh, for the city at Streets and Sanitations. So him and another guy that were doing Streets and Sand... Um, Got a, a little storefront. So, if you're familiar with Bridgeport, mm-hmm. in the 60s there was a lot of corner storefront selling sandwiches. Breaded steaks, beef sandwiches, and back then they did even pepper sandwiches with uh, red sauce. Oh, great. So, there was a, a four flat and it had Connie's on it. It okay. was owned by Connie de Grazia. She's an old Italian lady and she sold uh, like focaccia pizza yeah. and Italian subs. Okay. So, my dad and the other guy from Streets and Sands. Bought the place for, you know, a few hundred bucks Right They left the county sa- sign above it They were working, you know, 6-2-2 At yeah. Streets and Sands And then opening it up, working 4-1 Okay uh, so Then they started making pizzas Which was our, my nana's or my grandmother's pizza recipe And where did, and her recipe
3: came from where? Napoli Oh, okay, okay. So it traveled So um, what, like, what
4: came in the original recipe Or like, what was it, like, in, in the early days? In the early days, it, it was dough, yeah. which I get a little more into because yeah. dough is very complicated. Sure. But it was more like a bread dough. Okay. So, like, you're making bread on Sunday. Okay. Okay, because it was we were in Chicago and they're using bakery ovens, so it wasn't like a Napoli where you're mm. using more like pancake dough that's more for wood-fired ovens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the full circle maturation right. so we'll get into. So, then, so you would just have your bread dough and then San Marzano tomatoes. You'd the only time... The only type. The only type. Yeah. Squeeze them by hand, and you put, uh, you know, back down your, the sausage you get from the butcher or whatever he got his hands on back down, to be honest with you.
3: Yeah, what were, like, the suppliers like around them? Was just in the neighborhood, or was it a good relation? Oh, well, right in the
4: back of the yards. Right. So you would go to the market. Okay. You would get, you'd get everything right there. I mean, you know, Bridgeport in the back of the yards. The back of the yards is much bigger and robust mm. in the 60s. So you go in there in the morning, you get what you need. And, like, back then, you run out of dough, you run out of sausage, you're done. You're yeah, closed. that's it. It's yeah. over, you know. So, after a year with the partner, yeah, you know, they're both working about 18 hours a day. Right. The partner's like, I'm done, man. This yeah. is way too much work and way too little money. <laughs> right. So, my dad's like, all right, you know, I'm going to do it. And But I don't have any money. Right. And the partner's like, I'll take your car. So, he had a 1962 Oldsmobile Starfire Amazing That he traded The partner for To be the full guy
3: So that was Like he traded The stock for a car Right Okay Does he miss the car? (laughs)
4: <laughs> we bought the car back, oh, okay uh, so we, the car is sitting in my dad's garage now. oh my God so
3: that was like like how are we doing we got the car back and we have the full business yeah
4: yeah so in the 45th anniversary we actually it, we didn't get the same car yeah we got the same make we had to refurbish put the glass packs on it so he rumbles it down on Sundays uh, every now and then still to this day
3: so in so in like in 1964 65 what is the kind of like current state of Chicago
4: pizza at that time? Well, in Bridgeport, yeah. in our neighborhood, yeah. there was us and one other place. Right. So, I mean, there wasn't a lot of pizzerias. Yeah. There was Gino's, but they were Northside. Right. Which was like to us a different world. Right. Totally. And and Geno's is you know was the first guy to do deep dish mm-hmm. in the '40s, and it's a different animal. Right. So it's butter crust. So it's right. like a pie, and then it's you know layered with uh, cheese that slices and kind of acidic sauce. Mm. You know, not to be condescending, but our pizza is like more tender, uh, softer ingredients, so a whole different animal. Mm. But the pizza world was not competitive, and, then, and there wasn't a lot of it, and delivery wasn't competitive. So what really made Connie's his bones was my dad started delivering. Oh. So in the 60s, in a neighborhood like Bridgeport, so it was a it was very close-knit Italian-Irish-Croatian neighborhood back then, so he got a couple car drivers, put a Connie sign on the roof, and it'd be a 100 degree summer day. You drive down like 26th Street, or you drive down Low or Wallace, and the phones would just start lighting up, up because people back then they're sitting on a stoop because right. it's too hot out to sit in your apartment. There's no TV, so you're just sitting out there, you don't want to cook start ordering pizzas. Hmm. And that that was really what blew Connie's Pizza up.
3: That's amazing. So um, from, from there, like, take, like, a timeline. So, like, that's mid-60s. Like, how does it, like, you know, what are the kind of signifying years as, uh, as Connie's begins to evolve? And what are some, like, more, like, the landmark things that begin to kind of change into, like, what the landscape is okay, today?
4: So, so I'm going to revert back. Okay. 63, he starts. Yep. 64, the partner quits. Right. 64... Now you gotta remember, my my, uh, my family's immigrants. Hmm. Okay, so I mean my mother's side of the family, they're living in a tenement back then. So they're they're basically on, on welfare. My father's side of the family, they're they're scratching, but a city job is like you kinda made it. Like you're you got a good job, you get a pension. So my dad quit his job at the city, which was really a risky proposition back then. But he He always told me this, and, you know, we still love the neighborhood and thrive in the neighborhood, the families in the neighborhood, but he didn't want to be like every other guy in the corner, just hanging out, shooting dice, playing cards, and hustling. You know, he wanted to do something more for his family. He wanted his family to go to school. My mom didn't get past fifth grade, and he didn't get into high school. So none of them, neither of them, were educated. You know, he wanted more for his family. And he saw this as his opportunity to be more than just... A worker. So he's really had that entrepreneurial mind mm. to take it to the next level. So that decision is really the, the, the groundwork to what made him and Connie's what it is. So once he made that decision, he quit his job and he could focus. When you're working 18 hours a day, you can't think straight, right? Right. So now he can start thinking. Then he brings in, you know, uncles, cousins. My mom, my aunt was a really good cook, so we mm. start making pasta. Uh, and this guy comes at the door one day and is trying to sell bread, and it happens to be Umberto Toronto. Mm. So you know Toronto bread? Yes. It's the, it's the Toronto family. Amazing. So they start working <laughs> together on the dough, wow. and he helps them refine our pizza dough into more of the product that it is.
3: So you would mentioned dough. I want to pause you mentioned dough before so like how did it evolve at that moment like what where did it, where was it from your grandma's recipe to to what the collaboration became?
4: So my grandma's recipe was just straight bread dough. Um, since pasta dough is like egg and a little more refined flour, and salt, and that's it. Mm. You know bread dough is no egg, water, a little more gluten in the flour. Sea salt, olive oil, uh, and water. Mm. You know, and you mix it, and then the, the big thing that they learned by just trial and error is that when you let the dough get old, cold, it would get more flavorful. Ah. So they start fermentation process with the dough. So the dough had, had have start creating the cell structure, you know, like make it air and fluffy, mm-hmm. and all kind of crazy flavor. So what he, what he figured out is like this, this dough alone... I could sell dough alone, and it's very tasteful. So it's almost like the way our hydration level is and the amount of extra virgin olive oil we put in there, it's almost like a focaccia dough.
0: Hmm. Oh, interesting.
4: So it's very tender and it's very flavorful. So the dough is a star. All right, So the dough went from this basic bread dough and then just from him running out of dough or having too much dough. He's like, oh, the dough tastes better when it gets... When I let it sit in the cooler for a day, and then we cut it, and then we make it into pizzas, let it rise, and when we use fresh yeast, when we use this flour, when we use this better product, you know, so just over time it evolved into the, the real dough. When it, when you figured out how flavorful the dough was, he's like, all right, we're just going to put really clean ingredients on it. Mm-hmm. Some marzano tomatoes, we went to this uh, fontanini meats, another mm-hmm. guy in the back of the yards, right. who became really big after a while. But, yeah, like, the best sausage you could buy, show they're working together, how you pitchfork the butt the right way so you get the the best of the best. Yeah. And the sausage would release the flavor into the sauce. And, you know, back then in the 60s and 70s, sausage pizzas was almost 80% of our sales. Because it was just, like, what Connie's was known for. Right. It was, you know, the best pizza around. And then he started delivering that like crazy... Started selling it on the streets, downtown, McCormick Place, the stadium, and that's really what blew us up. And what year is that about? So that's and that's up until the early 70s. In 1971, he made enough money where he opened up. He went from that, underneath that floor flat, mm. and which he never changed the name, Connie's. Because right. there was a little window that had Connie's over there. He just never changed it, and then it got to get some traction. So he went from that little four-flat building that wasn't his property. He bought a little piece of property on 26 and Normal. We were on 26 and Low, so mm-hmm. it's literally a block and a half away. And he built, like, a box. It had maybe, uh, it was called it was Connie's Pizza Brew Pub, or not Brew Pub, Connie's Pizza Old Chicago Pub. Right. So it had a little bar, a little hearth uh, fireplace in the middle of the restaurant, and, like, 80 seats and 40 delivery trucks. The first guy ever to do a heated delivery truck was my father. So this invention was what really blew the counties up in the mid-70s. So we went from doing, you know, 100 deliveries a night to, by 1980, 1,500 deliveries a day out of that location. And just people waiting outside the block to get the pizza. That's incredible. And so when did you get into the kitchen? Eight. So, I was born in 75. Actually, tomorrow's my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> so, I was born on July 17th, 1975. My grandfather, yeah. Jacoby, yeah. which my son's name is. Ah, beautiful tattoo. <laughs> my son's Jacoby, too. My grandfather was born on July 17th as okay. well. So, I was born the same day. They thought it was amazing. Uh, by the time I was 8 years old, I was busing tables, cleaning. By the time I was probably 12, I was making pizzas. Mm. So
3: was it like a, kind of like a Jedi type thing where like you had to like stretch the dough first or chop the vegetables? Like how long did it take for you to get your hands onto like making oh, pizzas? It was
4: for sure a Jedi type yeah. thing. My dad, I, I don't know if you know this movie. This might be a little dated. There's this movie called The Great Santini. huh. Yeah. With Robert Duvall. Yeah, yeah. Where he's like crazy strict dad. My yes. dad is like that. Okay. He's like you know you sit at the dinner table and you finish your vegetables because. I worked my ass off to put those vegetables on the table, right. and you're going to eat them. Yeah. You know? And, you know, you, today, we're going to church, yeah. and you're going to work all day. Right. I don't care if you're nine years old and you want to go play baseball yeah. outside. So, in his, my first job was literally getting my hands and knees and cleaning the baseboards. Right. I'll never forget it, because I, I freaked out a customer, because I was underneath the table, dusting yeah. underneath <laughs> the table, and they're like, why? And my, <laughs> and my dad is, like, a, cre- a clean freak. Yeah. Which is great for the restaurant business. Yeah. So, like, the first few years was, like, I couldn't do anything. He wouldn't let me around any food. He'd only let me clean. Hmm. So before I could even touch any food, I'd have to clean.
3: So do you remember, like, when you first made, like, the first time you made a
4: pizza that you felt was, like, up to the standard of Connie's? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he had his kitchen boss was in there, and I was probably about 13, real young. And my, you know, it was getting really busy, and my dad's... Hey, we gotta get somebody who really knows what they're doing On the table And I was on the table And he's like The guy's right there Your son's quicker Than anybody else we got and my dad's like Come on, we're gonna play around We got a thousand pizzas to make And he's like He's the quickest one Jimmy yeah. And he just <laughs> looked at me And he's like Well, we'll see And like I bought, I mean, I busted my ass Yeah And I was making pizzas Making pizzas I like picked my head up six hours later when we got through the rush yeah. of you know all these orders. We had to bust out, and I look at my dad, and he's like, "Yeah, you did all right." <laughs> I, and, and I'm like, "I'm a badass pizza maker," yeah, yeah. and he's like, "You're not a badass pizza maker. Take it easy." Yeah, so, good.
3: Good is like good is like the best that you can get at that age from like because they know what great looks like. Like you're good. You're good. And yeah.
4: You know what? And as I grew, and I, I said this on my wedding day. I said this at his fiftieth anniversary. When we got into the Pizza Hall of Fame, he's a tough guy. Yeah. He had to go through adversity, you know. I work hard. I try and hold myself to really high standards, but I'm never going to be the man that he is, you know. Just because I didn't have it as difficult as he is, you know. So he's the toughest, coolest, smartest guy I know, and I just would, if I could get to half the level he is, I'd be happy. You know, I, I... I know for sh- I know I am smart enough to know I'm dumb. <laughs> That's uh, uh. So we're gonna take a quick
3: musical break, and then we're gonna uh, come back and talk about the '80s up through current day. Okay. Uh, here on Snacky Tunes.
0: Don't you sweat don't you swear it me, sin is left inside. Yes, <laughs> good
3: Uh, 1980s is kind of when you guys really expanded. Um, what did you notice in the larger kind of landscape of pizza? And did you see like Chicago in the larger areas being like really recognized as a pizza town? Or when did that when did that really begin to enter into like the national conversation?
4: Well, I think you hit the the nail on the head. The 1980s, uh, even beside pizza, business in general and entrepreneurship started taking off. Mm. Like, the economy started getting a lot better in the 80s. So, if you were a goal-getter and you worked hard and you did the right thing, you know, money was easy to make. Mm. You know, there was people hungry for jobs. There was a lot of people looking for upward mobility. And in this business, in the pizza business or the restaurant business, you got to be very passionate. My dad used to always preach about that. If you're passionate, you're going to be successful. And he was passionate, and he was really, really good about uh, picking people that wanted it and Mm -hmm. were hungry. So he he surrounded himself with other people that were hungry and wanted to better them lives, and he had a lot of, you know, he had a lot of sensitivity for people that were kind of, you know, street guys, for lack of a better word, and give them an opportunity if they wanted one. And those guys, you know, they would reciprocate. And he would reciprocate back and take care of them and pay them good money if they work hard and they hustled. And that's really what happened in the 80s, is that we hustled. We had the best pizza, and we still have the best pizza. But those trucks were an innovative, innovative piece of the puzzle for Connie's that really blew us up. So we would fill those, those trucks up with sausage pizzas and just send them all over the city. So back then downtown, I don't know people really understand that, there wasn't any restaurants downtown. You know, there was a business corridor. But if you wanted food, you'd have to get it delivered to you, or you would get out of your car and you would go have lunch somewhere else. So that's what we just would go downtown, back and forth, back and forth. Lunchtime in Connie's Pizza in the 80s was complete insanity. Right. Like, people would come in there and be like, Oh, my God, I've never seen so much food, pizza, and chaos that's so controlled. And they weren't In orders, space. you were just
3: sending trucks down and people would just buy them out of the truck? No, they'd be both. Oh, okay. So we
4: would fill some, we'd have like these 10 guys are going to go hustle on, you know, the Financial District, the United, the UC's having a, back down the stadium's having a game. Yeah. We're going to go to Sox Park, uh, we're going to Maxwell Street. Those guys would hustle. Yeah. And then other, then people just started ordering mm. because, you know, I go to Connie's, they, they're the only ones we could call and facilitate the, To feed 200 people in an hour, you know, like, I remember a Grateful Dead concert in the 80s. We must have went through, like, 5,000 pizzas, (laughs) you know, so there's just all these crazy days. Uh, We were in the Taste of Chicago since it was called the Chicago Fest in 1980 when uh, Gene Byrne was the mayor and was on Navy Pair. And, like, when they used to have the 3rd of July fireworks, I mean, the amount of pizzas we would sell there is just, like... And I would work from 7 in the morning to, like, midnight... You couldn't get out of the Grand Park because it was such gridlock. I'd walk all the way back from Grand Park all the way back to, you know, 26th Street just because I like can't get home anyway, so I might right. as well walk. Right. Uh, just, that's that's kind of what really blew us up in mm. the 80s. And then we started expanding. We went to the suburbs because, you know, people that were in the neighborhood started moving to different spots. They started migrating. So we went down 55 Corridor to Westmont. And, you know, and it kind of flourished out there. When in Naperville was new and didn't have anything to offer, so you had real Chicago pizza went out there and it flourished. Got it at the Navy Pier, McCormick Place. And just started trying to duplicate it. And then, you know, we then we actually made a conscious effort not to franchise or get too big because, I don't know, we're really kind of crazy about when you get that Connie's Pizza in the mouth that it's, it's consistent. consistent well to the, to the standard that we it yeah. to. So I mean and how does uh, someone become nowadays
3: like um, to, who gets to the level of making a pizza like what are the steps I know you had to clean baseboards but someone comes in you know what are the kind of guidelines to, to uphold that type of quality? The
4: same. Yeah. The same. So I got th- now that's what my dad says He's like you oh, know you're better than me. I'm so proud of you now. You know, these guys would do anything for you, and they're your guys now. Yeah. And he's like, and you got this place wired. I can't believe, like, how crazy it is, and, you know, you got every you got your hand on everything. Mm-hmm. And the way it is is, was, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, I'm working with these guys hand in hand. And as they went up with me, I, I would know who's good and bad and they would bring their son, they would bring their cousin um, and we just I would just develop it and I'd give people opportunities, you know, if you want to work, you want to make more, I tell them this this is how it works at Connie's it's a pizza, okay this slice of the pizza's got to come for business expense this other slice of the pizza's got to go to my family (laughs) the rest of the pizza is everybody else's Mm. if the pizza gets big enough Everybody else is gonna make more money, mm. and that's really how you continue to be successful. Is you got to share when you're successful, mm. and I, and I I do. I reciprocate. I'm putting four four of my guys through college right now. You know, it's like that's I rather build within instead of recruit without. I I've had had tr- a little bit of trouble of just hiring somebody off the street, and I'm assimilating to. Connies, because out of our 300 employees, like a third of them have been there more than 20 years. So, like if you're not, if you just come in there and you think you're going to punch a clock, they mean they shake you out, not me. Right. You know. So.
3: And so, um, I know that you, you mentioned this before, but you've kind of innovated and adapted to new different to different to new styles. How did that come about, and what type of pizzas are you making now, or what have you added more more or less into the mix? that goes back
4: to my father's entrepreneurship. And he probably was more aggressive than me. But you always got to, if you're standing still, you're going backwards. And we're always trying to look for the, the best way to make pizzas. And that's one part of it. So I'm always looking to make the traditional Connie's pizza the best pizza. And I added the wood fire just because we saw a need to do a quick serve. So we we're trying to do a quick serve Connie's or a scalable smaller Connie's a lighter fare to feed people who are coming in. Because you went from, excuse me to revert, but you go from the 60s where you're going in for your hour lunch and having a martini and going back to work to where now people are like, I got 12 minutes to have lunch, I gotta get out of here. So I didn't want to give them like a slice, uh, like a cafeteria type of pizza. So that's why we developed a wood fire to where it's quick, but the similar quality, just a different type of product. So it's still our dough, it's still our awesome ingredients, it's just in a different vehicle and a different animal. So it took the appetizer or the quick serve pizza into the different maturation.
3: Did uh, any of like the long term regulars revolt or say anything or say this is not a this is not a Connie's?
4: No, because we have both. Hmm. You know, you and that's that's kind of the concept I wanted it to do, is that you got your old style Chicago pizza, which you gotta wait a half hour for. Mm. You got your lighter fare pizza. Yeah. And that's two minutes and you're out. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And then you then for our beverage program it was like the same thing. It's like simple, easy, beer and pizza goes together. And you know we wanna we wanna just focus on things that make us successful for all these years, but just enhance them. So you'd have the best beer that goes with the pizza, the best dough that goes with the pizza. And then, like, with the pasta, you know, we make all the pasta instead of just getting imported dry pasta and drop it in the water. Right. We make all our sauce from scratch. We make all our soup from scratch. We make our chicken stock, all that stuff. So, the, instead of people revolting, people come more often. You know, we have customers on uh, the Archer Avenue location. Like, they come five days a week for longer than I've been alive. Right. You know, so you, you almost have to have that variety. And I haven't had anybody that... I have you. Of course, you got people that say, I prefer your pan pizza over your wood-fired pizza. You know, I don't... But that's just because they have a preference over one type of product or the other. That's you telling me, you know, I don't want to eat pasta, I'd rather eat salad. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing you could really do about somebody's preference of what they like. But if you like pizza and you like wood-fired pizza, I'm real confident you'll like mine, and the reason goes back to passion and quality ingredients.
3: And one of the things you, you mentioned is that you're still looking uh, at the recipe of the dough. Are you still refining the dough and, and that process? I refine
4: everything. Really? Every day all the time. Really? I always challenge myself. So I'll play, I just wait until I tell somebody yeah. to change something. Because, you know, you never know. You, never, you should never stand still. Like I've done a little couple tweaks with the dough that just make it a little bit better, and it, and I do a little th- couple things with the sausage that make it a little bit better. And if you're a customer and you're coming in every day, you're just like, damn, for some reason that pizza was really good today. I don't know what it was. Maybe they make it a little fresher. Maybe, you know, you wouldn't know, but it was. I know what it was. And that's what I'm looking now. Where before you would make big gigantic. Changes and now it's just you know how how do I make sure this dough stays good for a hundred percent of the pizzas? Not when it's in its optimal growth spot because our dough is a living animal. You know we're we're retarding we're has that retardation process in the cooler, so you know you it's got it's a lot of timing into it. So if you refine it a little bit, you make it a little more uh, dummy proof, so that it's the same consistent quality. So it's about it being the greatest quality 100% of the time instead of the greatest quality 90% of the time that's what the refining is really you're trying to do now and then little things come out that you didn't have uh, access to before you know before I didn't have access to Portuguese olive oil you know you had what was in the market you know what I mean now there's this olive oil has got a little nuttier flavor and it makes the pizza brown a little better you know, that's the difference. You probably wouldn't even notice. You'd just be, this pizza's a little bit better than the one I had last week. Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm in the mood or. But then the, all you know is that I got you. Yeah. You know, it's like a drug dealer. It's like, <laughs> I, I gave it to you. Like, I just got to go back and have that, you know? So that's what I'm looking to do. So I always play around without making it to where you would say, hey, you know, something's different today. And I don't know if I like it. Mm-hmm. You know, not, after 54 years, you can't do that. Right. It's got to be man your pizza is really on today you know so i'm always looking for it hey i haven't been here for five years and the pizza's even better and i can't believe it because it was the best pizza i've ever had that's what i'm always striving for so i'm always going to try and see what's out there and sometimes i'm right and sometimes i'm wrong but i never get it to the consumer if i'm wrong you know i always do a lot of a lot of r&d before we get to that point
3: uh, cool. well i want to thank you for making time on this beautiful day. Um, where can people find you? Where How can they locate you when they come to town? What's the best way to, to get a hold of you?
4: You know, probably go to our website. All locations are on there. All our menu and all avenues to get to Connie's. But it's Connie'sPizza.com. If you're in the city of Chicago and you dial 312-CONNIE's, we're going to come to you. Perfect. Okay?
3: All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today. We're going to take a quick musical break and we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
5: me up in the morning, I know you probably thought about it too, otherwise I'll never leave my oven, my arms and legs ever grow soft with you, come pick me up in the morning, and we can find a hole to crawl into, we're still pretending to be lightweights, my arms and legs ever grow soft, wah, ooh, ooh. Behind his smile is nothing. Long hair's a signal to the wandering eye. Anytime I'll leave my coughing gladly. Moms and legs that they would soft and die. Someone broken into my heart, will beat it into my head. Several hours to drive home, we'll fall asleep instead. So, so think it over, just think it over, don't let me down. Just think it over, just think it over, I'll be around.
3: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Simon Spine live in house. Hey guys, hello. You want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? You can kind of shout like over my shoulder.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm Nathaniel. I'm Peter. I'm Noah. I'm Devin.
3: Uh, so, Peter and Noah, we'll start with you two first. Uh, I know that you two kind of started this band on a European trip. Um, what was the inspiration? Was it like a midnight train to Paris? Was it a late night wander through like darkened European streets? Uh, what, where did it come from?
2: I think it was like a, like a shitty French hostel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Our- they're like, how do we avoid ever having
3: to stay in one of these again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll form a band.
2: Yeah, we'll the- make money. <laughs> Someone will fly us here. Yeah, the pillows were rocks. Oh. It was messed up. <laughs> um yeah no that was great we were on tour at that point with my um with my other group which is called karate at the time um and it was like electronic music so we were <laughs> playing these uh clubs in europe and peter was filling in for uh brother michael who's who sometimes plays with us and um and who's in that other band and yeah and we just started we started working on this other stuff while we were on the road and we ended up meeting some record label people in London that, and showed them what we had written earlier in the tour, and it turned into a, a thing. Was your other band
3: okay with like the, the side? Pro- it's like, I know we're on tour for this, but check this out. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, it was
2: totally cool. The other band was just me and, and our friend Brother Michael, oh, okay. who's, who's also with Simon Spine.
3: Oh, okay. Well, then that, that helps. And then um, yeah. how did you bring everybody else in? How did it evolve?
2: Um, Uh, Well, we all met at um, Skidmore College, upstate New York, originally. mm -hmm. And so we kind of like, I I mean, Devin was pretty much in the band before I even met him through word of mouth because we heard he was a nasty guitar player. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my first day at college,
3: um, we were riding a bus to this pre-orientation program called Scoop. And at the end of the bus ride, Noah gets on the microphone for the bus and he's like, Devin Kilburn, talk to me after this. And I'm thinking, oh my god, he's like an older guy, and i like, I've messed something up for this trip, I'm already in trouble. And he's like, Hey man, you want to join our
2: band? Like we hear your nasty at guitar. And I was yeah. just like, yeah. How did
3: that rumor get started like so early in you going to college? Or how did sure. you hear about it?
2: Oh, we had a we just had a friend, like a, a mutual friend. Yeah, our friend in a Amir.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Um, the band's ar- called Los Elk.
3: Thank- thanks, Amir. Uh, and then, uh, for you, how did you find your way?
2: So I had known Devin uh, through a performance group we were in uh, called Pulse at Skidmore College. It was like a percussion, like we drum on buckets and trash cans kind of group. So Devin and I were both in that group, and uh, our it was uh, this past semester I had kind of been talking with Devin about what Simon Spine is planning doing next year for a drummer. And then it's like, wow, like, I can't believe you just asked me that, like, where I should look for a drummer.
3: Were you like, were you like hinting or were you hoping or were you just like, what are you guys going to do?
2: It was more like, what were you guys going to do? But Got it. Definitely like in the back of my mind, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping something would
3: happen. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more, but like, now that there is a, a whole group of you, how has the songwriting evolved from the duo to the, the larger group?
2: Well, it's sort of it's it's been an interesting progression because the first few songs we wrote were written in transit and so we're mostly electronic. And so the first few songs that we learned how to play live, it was kind of like we were just covering ourselves. We were like <laughs> we had written these songs with like on the best Ableton. Simon Sine cover band. Exactly, in the world. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what we were. Um and then yeah, as it as it became more organic, like as we had as as we brought in these like amazing instrumentalists like nate and devin are just crazy at what they do it's sort of yeah i don't know it's it's shaped the whole thing it's become a more a more live band i would say
3: um well let's hear something yeah what are you guys gonna play first
2: um the song is called gears and you can hear it on our ep our debut ep
3: So, as complex as the music is, the artwork that kind of comes along with the EP and your uh, band aesthetic is, is really great, too. Um, how did you evolve that, and how did that kind of come together?
2: Um, I think the, uh, the guiding principle for the artwork, um, which, for anyone who's listening and hasn't seen it, is... Um, sort of contains a lot of, like, jagged and sharp lines surrounded by these sort of washed-out watercolors, um, was we were trying to represent sort of the dualism of the music, which is sort of inherently... I think we were trying to do something inherently um, beautiful and violent at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the in within the music, which is overall optimistic generally there's like a, a lot of I don't know light and darkness mm. interplaying off of each other and that's sort of what uh, what guides it I think yeah,
3: I and you know what feelings do you want people to when they if they were to just see the artwork you know take away from um, or represent, representation or messaging about the band
2: the duality I guess and yeah yeah the dualism I think we ideally we strive for the music to be pretty um to be so all over the place that it's sort of like almost physically exhilarating to mm. go through the whole album I mean that's it you know if it's if it's successful in that we're happy um but yeah, that should be the idea uh was to try to conjure up some sort of feeling with really abstract artwork
3: <laughs> and do you think? the fact that the record was recorded in so many different places and sometimes like in the sense of transit that like adds to kind of the way that the record moves into many different places.
2: Right. Well, I mean the, so like the final version was actually mostly recorded in one place. So Mm -hmm. we had all these demos which were recorded all over the place and then it became connected in part just through recording everything else with like the same people in the same space in the same time frame with like the same equipment. Um, but yeah, I think I mean I I think the fact that we were writing songs sometimes in like California and sometimes in like snowy upstate New York, um, and even in Costa Rica and places like that definitely uh, contributed to the whole idea of dualism in the music. It's sort of the album is meant to kind of have seasons.
3: Oh, and what uh, which season produces the best type of uh, songs for you guys?
2: I think it varies by songwriter.
1: Yeah, I like yeah. winter and fall. Yeah, okay. Peter
2: likes winter and fall. I, I like summer and spring. I'm like a fall spring middle ground kind of
1: guy. I think I, I'm
2: both summer and winter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I guess there's not just one season. And and to go back to the dualism, like what are the two messages that you're trying to kind of come across in the music, or what do you want you know the two sides of the story that you want people to come away with?
2: Well, I think it's sort of. I think we're just sort of trying to, um, again, do something that's overall optimistic, and and feel good, but that sort of illustrates how complex that can be. And I think that, I think that um, most mature people find that uh, joy cannot happen without without loss and without um, trials and tribulations. So. Um, it's supposed, to, it's, it's supposed to depict this, like, uh, victory over the many forces in life that, uh, that can be troublesome and difficult.
3: Uh, can we hear another song? Yes. What is the next one?
2: This one's called Eric's Basement and Secret Tunnels, and it's the first song we ever wrote in Paris.
4: I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes when everybody's asleep. I say, I know you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back. But he's singing a
0: little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And
5: we sleep together like that. With our secret pact. it's nice enough to make a man weak. I don't believe
3: sitting here watching you play there's just kind of one question that's going over my mind that you said um do you think optimism is hard to find in 2016 (laughs) um i think it's not necessarily hard to find optimism but it's a lot
2: easier to find doom and gloom hmm. it's it's maybe hard to maintain optimism boom yeah okay i think i think we live in a society where we we value, like, these bursts of happiness and bursts of joy, and the, the harder thing is to maintain it, and I think that's something that we're all sort of struggling with in our real lives, and that's what lends itself to the music. The last two songs you also played are more on the, like, winter-fall scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's also true.
3: Do you, So do you see the, the record and the songs as... Um, aspirational or like a you know something to strive for
2: i think it i think it is somewhat i mean i think it sort of depicts a like a mental journey in itself i think while there's there are a lot of themes of struggling with maintaining optimism throughout the album and in the in the end i would say it's basically achieved um within sort of the universe of the songs you know whether we've achieved it ourselves in real life is, you know, I think debatable, but, um, but the idea is, is that it's depicting this journey and that by the end, one feels sort of like a lasting satisfaction.
3: Hmm. Okay.
2: I once heard someone, (laughs) I once read someone describe our music as walking through a rainforest, but like having somewhere safe to go afterwards. So in that sense, I would definitely say it's like more about the journey. Yeah. Then it is where you
3: are going. Uh, is there any one particular song that you could encourage people to listen to when uh, the walls seem like they're closing in and the doom and gloom is all around them?
2: Um, I'm not sure there's one particular song. I guess we do. Our song Shocked is sort of like a like slap in the face cheer up song so maybe maybe that's helpful for some people that might not be helpful I don't know <laughs> defense I think the whole the album as a whole is sort of more of a a meditation than, than any individual song
3: um, great well I want to thank you guys for coming in thank you so much yeah. right. um, thank you so much this was awesome and this is like such a joy yeah. uh, where can people find you um, get the records follow you check out your shows
2: yeah well it's it's everywhere it's on all the social media <laughs> Simon Spine It's spelled weird. It's spelled P S Y M O N, spine, like the body part. Um, It's on Spotify and Apple Music and all that. And if you want to buy anything, head over to Axis Moody Records.
0: Oh yeah,
3: yeah, let's talk about your label for like a quick second. Yeah. Um, Shout them out. Uh, Yeah, Axis
2: Moody Records. What up, Bill?
0: What up, Graham? Our family.
2: (laughs) We're we're on a label with a bunch of our best friends and all of our favorite bands and it's amazing you should check it out i mean that's
3: kind of the greatest right it's the best, i mean yeah. it's like just the coolest thing just to be surrounded by people you admire mm-hmm. and love and respect and you're like damn like they push you, you push them.
2: Yeah, totally.
3: That sounds like a good recipe for optimism.
2: Yeah, well, it's a lot of, a lot of people that we really looked up to before we even knew them personally, oh. and now it's this weird thing where we're bouncing off of them and we're affecting each other's lives rather than them just affecting our lives, which is a little spooky, honestly, mm-hmm. but but I good.
3: mean, they always say there's like a danger in meeting your heroes, but sometimes yeah. it just works out. Yeah, no, it totally worked really out really in out. this case, yeah. 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 Real hard, definitely. Uh, so we want to go out with one last song. Great. Uh, what are you going to play for us?
2: Um, this song is called Transfiguration Church. It's named after this, um, this experience I had where we were trying to go see our label mates Is Tropical DJ uh-huh. um, a few years ago when we were all underage. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the time, we couldn't get into the club, so we tried to sneak. This was in Chinatown. We tried to sneak through this abandoned church called the Transfiguration Church.
3: Unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> um, well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in this week. Uh, shout out to the family. To uh, me Paul, Anna, Darren, everyone, um, we will be back with another episode of Snacky Tunes next week. Thanks for listening. Take us out.
5: Food. We talk about music, music. with musical dudes. finger on the pulse. snacky tunes Thanks for
1: listening to this program on Heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage Underscore radio. We talk about food,
5: we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio.